the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Hi, everybody. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And this week joining us, we've got uh, Scott Crow and Benton Bottomer, who are with Dickinson Wright out of Ohio. And Dickinson Wright, uh, their law firm, one of their areas of specialization is in medical cannabis. And Scott and Benton um, are focused on M&A around the uh, medical cannabis space uh, which is extremely pertinent to all of our listeners uh, with today's market and the activity and the consolidation that's starting to happen worldwide. So welcome on board. Great to be here. Thanks for so, having us. So you mentioned something to me uh, just a couple of minutes before we got on air that uh, your firm and yourselves have been involved for uh, with medical cannabis and cannabis for nine years. That's uh that's uh, an eon in this industry. How, uh, how did that start? Uh, it actually started with a conference um, that uh, myself and another attended in San Diego. And it was about an hour into the conference that it was clear that this industry was under service from not only a legal aspect, but really every aspect, financial banking, you name it, there was a, a gap. And it was also clear that this was a very complex uh, area of law, um, which I think some some mistakenly step into it without that perception. And, and for me, I'm a healthcare M&A attorney, and I've spent my career doing healthcare transactions, uh, and cannabis was even more complex than that. So it was a perfect fit, in my opinion, for a large law firm to have a chance to play in this space because there really is no such thing as just a quote cannabis lawyer that can do everything, the real estate, the IP, the M&A, the employee benefits. It really takes a big box firm or a group of firms collectively working together toward that end to service a growing cannabis client. Great, great. And of course, you know, since that first conference, I'm sure you've gone to many and seen them grow from you know, I've seen some which went from 30 and 50 people to a couple of thousand. And uh, obviously, the, the conversations you're having have changed significantly. What, um, you know, as we look at the, the market, everybody had the big ride up. And the conversations were about the, you know, the moon is within reach. And today, that's no longer the case. But there's a lot more activity right now. Uh, in the U.S. than there is elsewhere from a uh, perspective of there's still more funding activity and there's more, uh, you know, on a state-by-state basis, more transactions happening. But your firm, it obviously will look at transactions everywhere. What do you see coming up in the next 12 months or so? How is it going to change? Yeah, Richard, it's Benton. Um, You know, I think we've already seen a big part of that change, which as you described, there was the the ride up from a public market standpoint. And uh, I think as a lot of people know, strangely, the only way for a U.S. operator to access public marketplaces, um, if it's state compliant but federally non-compliant, is, is the Canadian route. And I think what you've already seen, and I think I think 
COVID and the, the financing crunch associated with it accelerated that to some extent was fewer trying to go that route. And the operators that had already successfully stood up operations in the U.S. Um, just continuing to do what they've been doing and attracting private capital. So I think those private pools of capital are continuing to come in to the industry and the opportunities to deploy private capital without access to public markets are increasing as some of the operators that didn't quite get fully operational and therefore suffered disproportionately from the economic and, and societal and cultural shutdown yeah. um, you know, of, of this year, as, as those opportunities um, fade for them, they arise for other people willing to step in and, and take over and um, build out of operations. No, and then that makes uh, complete sense. So, you know, as companies start looking, you know, people are looking at, you know, raising capital, but also a lot of people have to restructure. And, you know, whether they're going to do a restructure, or they're going to deal M&A, one of the challenges becomes evaluation. And they become very different discussions. In a, uh, in a restructure, you're trying to figure out, you know, the survival of the business, but also your whole cap table gets reworked and reset. But in, in M&A, uh, the valuation discussion today is, you know, where before it was wildly euphoric, today it's wildly pessimistic. Um, but how are people grappling with the whole concept of relative values as they're entering into transactions or looking at them? Are, are people, are you finding there's, you know, that healthy dose of reality or do people need help? Well, I don't know that it's uh, to start, I guess, with some of the last point on valuations being pessimistic. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think you saw even as, as long ago as um, um, you know, last May, not, and not this last May, May of 2019, mm-hmm. you started to see a focus even in the Canadian marketplaces to, um, or in particular in the Canadian public markets, a shift toward traditional metrics, right? Yep. I think those... The valuations were so wildly optimistic because it was a new frontier, because it was truly viewed as green space where you didn't have rampant competition. As competition comes online, you have earnings and you have traditional financial metrics like EBITDA. And that's where the valuation conversation is getting pushed. You know, instead of um, looking at three-year pro forma financials that that mm-hmm. uh, predict that you'll successfully attract investment, that you'll successfully build out a company, that you'll become operational, that you'll do all these things. You're looking at legitimate trailing EBITDA numbers now. And that's something people can get their heads around. And I think from an M&A perspective, the complication is if it's a strategic buyer, mm-hmm. as is usually the case in M&A, unless it's the, the financial players that are slower, in some cases incapable right now of getting into to these acquisitions, are they buying with their own stock? And then the relative valuation becomes a factor as well because the valuation of a private operator and the valuation of a public company, I think has started to go back in the other direction where it could actually be more valuable to not um, have already gone the public liquidity route and, and to still be a private operator. Yeah, right. I, and I guess to recategorize, I don't know the valuations are pessimistic. I, th- I think a better word is they're realistic or whereas they were before because you had really uneducated operators that were building out multi-state operations and never having had done so in their careers for most of them, which right. that in and of itself is a huge undertaking and, and will steer most private equity or financial buyers away from 
that type of geographic footprint if it's if it's not already in place and operating. Number two, you, you just have better educated financial buyers in the marketplace today. I think there was a huge learning curve and, and you're now seeing more professionals being attracted to the industry that have been there and done that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's getting less riskier and it's being treated more like any other industry should be from a valuation standpoint. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's that's very fair. And, you know, pessimistic may be the wrong uh, term uh, to use in the circumstance. You're right. It's, uh, I think there's a, I think there was a level of euphoria that was overvaluing things before. And today we're looking at it and a lot of businesses are undervalued. And those are great buying opportunities, mm-hmm. but they're also very difficult in terms of they do need the funding to make it through the next phase. So it's well, a, and that's, that's, that's a key piece of the handicapping of the, of the valuation is yep. if it's not truly a going concern, if those operators need capital to exist, what is the alternative? And for example, could they avail themselves of bankruptcy protection? Yep. Generally, no. In some cases, depending on the, on the structure, you know, certain support portions of an organization could. Um, and then there's the state receivership piece. So unlike traditional businesses where you could typically speaking walk away, um, cut losses, and you've mitigated liability for for the entity, that's not really, you don't have the same optionality in, in this industry at this time. Yeah, and that's a that's one of the challenges without the federal legalization in the U.S., where in other countries you do have that, uh, you know, like in Canada, it's a federally regulated industry, so you Absolutely. have the full coverage, and that's a issue. So, you know, as far as transactions going, well, um, let's discuss that a bit further after the break in terms of what you're seeing for activity and that access to capital, which is going to bridge people into those transactions. Uh, We're going to come back in a moment with Scott Crow and Ben Bodmer of uh, Dickinson Wright. And I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet take anywhere treat. Plant Profits. I'm Vern Davis, and I'd like to introduce you to some of the most forward-thinking executives and companies in the cannabis industry. We call them the Plant Profits. Each week on Plant Profits, we talk to the people at the forefront of the industry, creating real companies and career opportunities. We'll learn from the people leading the charge into the promised land of profit. Plant Profits is powered by Protus Global, People Solutions Firm that has been building companies, changing lives since 1995. P-R-O-T-I-S global.com. Protus Global. Find Plant Profits now at CannabisRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. (laughs) They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? 
not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back with Scott Crow and Benton Bodimer uh, from Dickinson Wright. And, you know, before the break, we were talking about some of the ways the valuations have been moving and everything else and the discussions that comes on. Um, but, you know, that all leads into ac- mergers and acquisitions. And... How are you seeing the activity there changing? Is it, you know, are you are you seeing more um, cross-border activity, more multi-state operations developing? Are you looking at more activity of consolidation within states? Where, where are you seeing the next right now and what do you think is going to be the case in, you know, six months and 12 months? I think you're going to see, which, which we're already seeing, is a, a lot of distressed, asset deals where there was a euphoric valuation and the company simply was not able to support the structure and not able to obtain capital to complete the build out. Um, So there's definitely a a marketplace for the distressed sales, but there's also, you know, take Michigan, for example, and, you know, the recent numbers that were published showing them now with north of 10% of the entire cannabis market, I think a number of the larger multi-state operators who really hadn't been paying attention to it now are looking seriously at that market. Uh, and, and again, in most cases on the M&A side, which Ben mentioned earlier, you're, you're buying an entity that typically needs additional capital injected in it to build out its footprint. Right. Um, aggregate a number of licenses, partially build out. How do you complete that process or sell off the assets to raise capital to shrink your footprint, but improve your profitability? So uh, the market's really, in my opinion, somewhat all over the place, but we are seeing new companies pop up uh, in the MSO space, some that were keen on being experts in their own jurisdiction and now are looking to go outside of that jurisdiction, either through licensing arrangements or through hard asset build-outs. Yeah, to to build on something Scott was saying, I think, um, whereas with the original MSOs, it was a land grab from a securing real estate rights and securing licenses. And and to some extent, securing those licenses was focused on applications um, over acquisition because there weren't weren't companies with existing licenses in place. A number of years later now, we can look back on that and and see that the capital required was, generally speaking, higher commitment than than a lot anticipated. And you now have a a fresh opportunity for for M&A activity to say, okay, what are the marketplaces, you know, not just individual license opportunities, what are the marketplaces where it might make sense to have a, an MSO style footprint in multiple geographies, and then you can go into that marketplace and find an existing opportunity for an existing license. You know how much capital is required. In some cases, it might already be 
be operating and you can consolidate earnings and grow a company that, that necessitates an even higher valuation by putting EBITDA together. I mean, it's the traditional uh, financial investment model where you, you can have a platform and add legitimate revenue to that platform with, with fixed capital costs yep. and building on that, um, you know, turn it into something worth, worth more than the individual uh, sum of the parts that you put together. Absolutely. And how do you look at states that are, you know, now vis-a-vis the market, the new states that are coming online? Is there a localized, you know, there won't be the same gold rush there was, but is there a localized version of that that's going to happen in some of the states as they they really join the marketplace? Or do you think, no, that's all done and it's going to go in straight as business fundamentals will hold from day one? Both. Yeah, you'll, you'll still see that same gold rush mentality. If it's new to your state and you haven't specifically considered investment, you'll see local investors um, finding excitement for uh, get, getting access into a local marketplace. But then again, you're still going to see now at this point, people are starting to talk about and there's beginning to be an emerging focus on what might a multi-state marketplace look like. You know, I think you can you can look over to New yep. York and New Jersey and, and, and what they're thinking about. You can look at uh, proposed legislation that would contemplate uh, commerce between states. Clearly, there's a federal um, issue with that. But it's now part of the federal conversation as well. So I think the thing that the thing that's most interesting about the cannabis industry and the individual states and the way these marketplaces have have grown is there's always this massive unknown but somewhat known factor out there, which is federal noncompliance. And where does the country go? Um, at, and I don't know that anyone can know that because I think there's actually a lot more at stake um, in November. Yep. And is necessarily uh, generally known. Um, I think the the Obama administration policies that really allowed what at the time Obama took over was 13 states with medical mm-hmm. uh, to turn into 33 states with medical over time. Uh, right. and the possibility of more this fall, you know, that was a hands-off presidential executive approach. Um, I think we have the perception of a hands-off presidential executive approach today, but I don't know that that's actually what's going on. I think some of the individual agencies have more discretion than they did when you had an Ogden memo or a Cole memo that was a true executive level presidential top-down decree to allow state marketplaces to develop and to blossom. Uh We have no such guarantee these days. So that's the biggest unknown in these individual states. It's not what's going on in that state. It's what's going on in the country. And, and, you know, who can, who can predict November 3rd? I I think the other thing you'll start to see is, is more specialization, which, which is what we've started to see where the original MSOs believe they needed to have the cultivation, have the production and, and have the dispensaries. But when you finally get down to the dispensary, it's clear that your own system is not capable of providing the breadth of products that you're going to need to prop up a retail operation. So I think you'll start to see more opportunities for specialists to come in and buy pieces and parts of operations that, I mean, you can't be great at every aspect of, of that vertically integrated operation. So. Yeah. Um, well, like in every other business, pick, right? There's yeah, very few. Picking what you're, yeah. Picking what you're good at and getting rid of the rest. Yeah. No, I, I see that. It has started. I mean, it's unfortunate for the the operators who are stuck in states where they're forced to be vertical because that's not that crimps 
competitive opportunities because you know there could be very successful firms in every area of the vertical but it's not normal that a business is uh, phenomenal at every area of a vertical supply chain it's just completely different knowledge bases in uh, in the different areas it's already hard enough to be an outstanding cultivator and extraction let alone all the other steps well you often finding yourself managing to conflicting ends that they, they don't mesh up because you're running all the aspects of it, right? Yeah. Now, of course, that'll change with um, federal legalization. We won't, we're still going to see state-by-state rules that are going to be crimping businesses in the near term from that perspective. And that, you know, that's a, that's a challenge for everybody. But when that does happen, and, you know, I look at the, the market in the U.S. and, you know, I, I, I see the first step that logically everybody will buy into is a schedule is a schedule five allowing for pharmaceuticals and pure prescriptions to, to be undertaken as a, a first step that the government would take and say, well, we have legalized it's handled as a, a narcotic controlled good under this framework. And it gives everybody something. Do, do you see that? Or do you see enough pressure that it goes further sooner? I mean, like you said, everything's going to depend on November, but there's a lot of money invested both by, you know, by people in both parties. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we've already seen perceptions on scheduling mm-hmm. um, from a synthetic perspective. And you can look back at Marinol, yep. which is Schedule 3, right? And it's it's chemically, um, I, I guess, and, and, it's, and it's impact efficacy, et cetera, similar to what is, what is, what remains on schedule one, um, you know, in, in, in the form of THC. So I, I think to talk about the pharmaceutical side of things without talking about the more than 100 other cannabinoids beyond THC, yeah. um, is to be, is to be led astray to some extent. I think we're still learning so much about what are all of those others. I think from a pharmaceutical perspective, there's probably a lot more opportunity to have a proprietary opportunity on a a so-called exotic cannabinoid that might be harder to produce, requires a synthetic um, reproduction um, or, or synthetic production technology and can be, can be protected via intellectual property rights. I think if you're, if your play from a pharmaceutical perspective is to protect something that at its core is a plant at this point grown um, legally under state law in at least 33 states and actually more if you consider some of those state marketplaces that have medical but with limited THC up to five percent so right. people growing this plant in all of these places already to try to say that you're going to protect it from a from an intellectual property standpoint unless you have um, proprietary cultivars or proprietary genetics um, which do exist yep. I, I think it's much harder to justify um, so I think from a lobbying perspective, I don't know why you would spend the capital to put psychoactive, you know, traditional cannabis on a, on any schedule. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly a fight that plays out in, in Congress, not necessarily well-informed by scientific discourse, unfortunately. <laughs> no, well, unfortunately, most of this discussion hasn't been well-informed when it comes to the political level, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it is, you know, the the level of ignorance and people debating the issue sometimes is, is deafening. Um, We have to go to break. 
And but we'll be back in the, again in a moment with Scott Crow and Benton Bodmer with Dickinson Wright. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Fortunate to have Michael Brewer of Brewer and Shipley. Your signature top 10 song, One Toke Over the Line. I've read a couple different versions of, of what the tune's origins are. What's the true story? We were playing a little club in Kansas City. A friend stopped by with some really good hash. We stepped out back and came back in. We're tuning up in the dressing room, and Tom said, Man, I'm really One Toke Over the Line. And I just cracked up. I thought it was hysterical. We literally wrote that song just entertaining ourselves and to make our friends laugh. It's time to Hem Present, only on Cannabis Radio. Empire, a show dedicated to exploring the many potential therapeutic uses of the cannabis plant. Once a cornerstone of healing and now making a heroic comeback, cannabis has the potential to promote health and well-being, bring the body back to homostasis, and foster recovery for a healthier way of living. Hempire focuses on a diverse range of serious health issues, presenting views ranging from those of patients and their loved ones through those of researchers and medical professionals. Welcome to Hempire. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now About a game for your phone gonna make you say wow The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash Little by little your empire grows large Put different celebrities inside your entourage You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong The name of the game is Hemping, that's the point Download and play while you light yourself a joint the business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back with Scott Crow and Benton Bodmer with uh, Dickinson Wright. And we've been talking all about, you know, medical cannabis. But of course, one of the things that's coming up that people are starting to pay more and more attention to is uh, sexillum and the, um, all of the other uh, plant-based medicines that are starting to garner more attention. Those are, you know, legal in many more jurisdictions right off the bat for pharmaceuticals to do research on, but also to bring products to market. How are you seeing the activity in that space mirror what happened in cannabis? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's interesting in the ways that it doesn't mirror it um, to some extent. I think you do see some mirroring in decriminalization efforts at the <laughs> at the state and local level. I think you see, you see some state ballot initiatives for uh, this November. You see um, some individual cities, you know, Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, yep. and, and then out in Denver that have decided uh, on a decriminalization path, but I think the the pathway that cannabis took and some of the benefits along the way, um, in particular the the change in social perception, I don't know that that really has the kind of runway on on the psychedelics front to avoid a more traditional FDA route. So I think right. from a from an investment standpoint, um, one of the things we've seen is investors who got comfortable with 
the concept of investment in um, something that is that is intended as medicine, and you describe you know plant-based medicine, but that is technically federally non-compliant. That's what cannabis is at the right. state level, federally non-compliant, but it is medicine, and investors found comfort. There were protections in place for those investors in the context of cannabis that simply don't exist in the psychedelics um, uh, development at this point. And so I, I think unlike cannabis, which it doesn't really make sense to try and pursue a, you know, which schedule is appropriate yep. um, philosophy. I think we're, we're hopefully past that, although maybe we're not from, from a psychedelics perspective, it, it really could undo a lot of the progress that we've seen on cannabis if it's not done correctly. And if people try to go too far afield of the traditional um, regulated and FDA route. Yeah, you, right. you mentioned, Rich, the, the ignorance of some of the conversation, and you, you can imagine how that would how that would take place with, with psychedelics. Oh, God, it yeah. Would, it would be even worse. So. Of course it is. It's, uh, but it's interesting that in so many areas of the world, it's been simpler to get acceptance, uh, maybe because they talk about microdosing and people think that once you end up in this space, the it's so controlled and the dosage so small that it doesn't, we don't have the risks. And I think it's just time. The U S perception wise is behind it. And, and I'm quick story is the the first conference back to the one that, that we attended um, having a conversation about cannabis plant-based medicine with a, it was a female at the time and, you know, going along the conversation and then she flipped the switch to psychedelics. And at that time, Nine years ago, I have to say, she kind of lost me on right. the case and acceptance and like this would never occur. But now, nine years later, we're starting to have conversations around this exact topic. So it does show movement, but I don't think, I think the U.S. is far behind the rest of the world's perceptions when it comes to these types of medicines. Yeah, but that, that progress can happen pretty quickly. I mean, yeah. an interesting thing with cannabis was uh, back in 2012, um, you know, you look at what um, California was 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 thinking about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, California decided in a in a midterm election, um, or in a in a sorry in a presidential year, um, you you already had at that point some states that had basically said, you know, hey, we we we'd like like California had thought we'd like to potentially go down this route to full scale adult use. I, I mean, that's eight years ago, um, you don't have federal acceptance, even from a Rohrabacher Farr, you know, uh, withholding of federal prosecutorial dollars perspective right. for, for cannabis. So it took a long time. It's still taking a long time there, but it took zero time following what was the first call memo, um, or essentially the, the message from, from the Obama administration was, hey, we gave you medical. California is now proposing adult use. Don't do that. <laughs> That's a terrible idea, right? Eric Holder right. wrote a missive to everyone and said, don't do that. And the very next year, you had two states that, that absolutely did that. Of course. And they did, it, they did it because medical at that point was effectively a shorthand for widespread adult use, probably because of the breadth of the qualifying conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, it, but it accelerated rapidly. And, you know, those marketplaces still exist. They haven't been significantly disrupted. Um, and so, I, I, you know... It, it is slower to the root of acceptance, but all it takes is one justifiable example that you can point to, legitimate example, where you can point to a harm 
and you can point to a public risk because this whole conversation is, is about the, the social welfare plateau. And there are a lot of places on that plateau where you can be perfectly safe, but there are, there are also cliffs, right? And I think for years and years and years, we had these barriers set up where we said that cannabis is a barrier. You can't possibly cross that barrier. Enough people crossed it that they said, well, there's not a cliff here. You've been lying to us. Um, there are real cliffs, I think, on the other side of um, misuse of substances that we don't know enough about scientifically. And I think unlike cannabis, it had decades of research in, in Israel, for example, um, that you could point to and say, well, let's, let's import that knowledge, but the, the scientific underpinnings are there. Um, it, it's still very much coming online. I hope that the studies like Johns Hopkins, for example, and other universities are, are continuing to come online, that that is the route that continues, that it's the academic side, it's the scientific side, um, but it does have meaningful opportunity to change the entire medical fabric in, of the U.S. And the marketplace is a little bit different. In, in cannabis, you literally had millions upon millions of closet smokers that were waiting for the opportunity to enter a legal dispensary. I don't know that you could say the same with psychedelics. Not that there aren't users, but the critical mass that critical mass is nowhere near, near the right. size it is. No, it isn't. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to develop. It'll be interesting to watch how that how that emerges because it is very, very different than the cannabis marketplace in terms of early market participation. But unfortunately, we're out of time for today. I'd like to thank you for joining us and to thank all of our listeners. But guys, for uh, listeners who have more questions, how can they reach you? You can you can reach us via uh, email or via our phone, which... It's all on the, on the firm website, dickinsonright.com. Perfect. So visit dickinson-right.com and the uh, email and the phone numbers are right there for anybody who wishes to uh, contact you directly with for assistance with regards to M&A, you know, uh, buyouts, joint ventures, restructurings, you name it, anything to do with the uh, medical cannabis space and, you know, business law regarding it, you're, uh, you're some of the guys to call. Thanks for joining us today and thanks to everybody for listening. I'm Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.